Hello and welcome to Playback Daily for Monday the 29th of January. I'm Louise Herity and here's some of what's coming up over the next hour. A lot of the time it is simply that they have no better way to express their frustration and so it's just a, almost like a, an instinctive reaction or it's a, yeah, a reflex reaction almost to just fly into this rage. Obviously Ian passed away mm. um, in like a tragic event on Kilimanjaro six months after I climbed but he was, he was an inspiration for me anyway. And I think it's just really, really important to represent that, I suppose, represent the experience of somebody who's been imp- impacted by, by cancer. Uh, I didn't get cancer myself, but, you know, it certainly turned, turned my life and my children's lives upside down. The start of a new week and a brand new show on Radio 1, but with a familiar face. But look, it's lovely to be here and not partially here like I have been for um, a bit of a, a while and I've got lots of well wishes and good looks from about the place. Some lovely handwritten cards, hand-painted cards and messages indeed from uh, the Presenters Illuminati group in here. Welcoming and or commiserating, you know yourself. And sure, why wouldn't I join or tea? We seem to be going through something of a golden age right now, aren't we? Who wouldn't want to be part of this soaring rocket replete with optimism and high in public favour with bits of the ceiling falling in here and there and more internal investigations and a crypto startup. By the way, before you text in, no, I haven't seen a single rat yet. So I don't think I'm actually a fully fledged proper inmate until I see the first rodent. I'm looking forward to that day. They're all in the newsroom, I gather. Why would they prefer the newsroom over... Uh, something with more a sense of decay. Uh, for some reason, Orty Gold comes to mind. Am I allowed to make comments like that anymore? Do we know? Sure. We'll find out as we go. By the way, uh, a warm, warm welcome to the newspaper radio critics who are tuning in today for the last time. How he is, lads? Judging and uh, dying for the whole thing to land at its arse, let's face it. I know you, you see, I know you because it takes one to know one. Come back in June, July or so when I might uh, know what I'm doing. And actually, come to think of that, why doesn't the radio people, why don't we sort of do critiques of the quality of print journalism? It would be pretty much the same thing, wouldn't it? If your job is weird, text us now. Uh, it's, been, it's been fun. The one-week build-up has been extremely encouraging. Um, Brian Dobson heard that I was coming and immediately announced that he's leaving. Who knew I was going to be the final straw for Dabo after he, 37 years, wasn't it, of sitting across from political gobshites. But he's out of here only now. After everything I've done for you, Dabo, go back to sleep, Ireland. I'm only messing uh, with Sir Dabo. Sir Dabo, it would be literally the only knighthood that we'd actually accept in this country. But he's staying with us anyway until early May, so we'll get at least one more season of Callan's kicks out of his alter ego, and that's what truly matters. And one of the guests on Oliver Callan's first show was mountaineer Ryan O'Sullivan. He climbed Kilimanjaro at the age of 16 and has become the youngest mountaineer to do all of the seven summits. 27-year-old Sligo man Ryan O'Sullivan is on the line. Good morning to you, Ryan. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. I was listening to the first 15 minutes of your show there and I wasn't sure if I was more surprised to be on the show or that there was another <laughs> Ryan O'Sullivan on. Yes, yeah. <laughs> just totally conveniently. Two different Ryan O'Sullivans just winning stuff globally. So congratulations to you, first of all. Thanks very much. You, you've just come down off the, the, the seventh summit only, what, a fortnight ago or so? Yeah, I summited on January 8th and I was off the mountain on January 11th. So, yeah, quite recently. What was the last mountain then you, that you climbed? Yeah, I was over in Antarctica climbing Mount Vincent. Um, so 
as you can imagine, it's quite a difficult place to get to. So for me, it was... Um, you were a bit casual on to... Antarctica. <laughs> yeah, so it was always, for me, I was always going to be the last one. Um, right. So yeah, I was over there for about two weeks, um, trying to pretty much get to the top of it and get off it without any problems. So thankfully that all worked out and yeah, January 8th stood on top. That was your Christmas. That was your Christmas. It was, yeah. I actually left home on Christmas Day. I had to drive out the door uh, I'm on at 5pm on Christmas Day, which was far from ideal. But Go away. It had to be done, yeah. But your family Go are used to you now after 11 years of this. Yeah, they're not even surprised at this age. Yeah, <laughs> they don't bat an eyelid. Before we get back into that, can you just give us an overview, first of all, uh, about the mountains and the, and the seven peaks that you have climbed over these uh, 11 years that have made you the youngest Irish mountaineer to do so? Yeah, so basically there's seven mountains ranging in, in height and difficulty and technicality. And so for me, I started with Kilimanjaro, but the, the easiest, the most accessible one would be Kosciuszko in Australia, which I did in November 2022. And that's about 2,200 metres high. And then the next, you've got Mount, in terms of heights-wise, you've got Mount Vincent, which I just did, and that's the highest in Antarctica. Yeah. From there, you've got... Um, Mount Elberis in Russia, which is the highest in Europe, and then on to Kilimanjaro in Africa. Uh, and then you get into the sort of, there's a step up from there and you get into the more serious from a height-wise and technicality-wise. You've got Aconcagua in Argentina, which is the highest in South America, Denali in Alaska, which is the highest in North America, and then obviously, needs no introduction, you've got Everest then, the highest in Asia. Um, which I did in May of this year, or last year now. Last year. I mean, they're all serious, and they're all very dangerous, of course. Yeah, like, some of them, like, obviously with the high altitude, there's risks that come with that. Um, some of them aren't as technical as others. Like, you know, you'd hear quite a lot of people going off to climb Kilimanjaro with the trekking peak. It's quite a good introduction to high-altitude mountaineering. Uh, and then on the other end of, end of the spectrum, you've got Denali, which is a brute of a mountain, and then Everest, which, you know, Everyone knows uh, what happens up there. So, yeah, there's just a, there's a, such a mix, really. Um, mm. Luckily, in the Seven Summits, there's kind of a natural stepping stone, you know, from one to the next. There's um, there's a way of kind of doing it in that the previous mountain kind of trains you for the next one. Um, yeah. So it kind of does help that way. You spend it. How did you start all of this? Uh, kind of just really random. So. A man named Dean McKeever came into my secondary school when I was in transition year. He was trying to get students to go. To, he was basically describing the seven summits. He once held the world record for the fastest time to go up them all. Yeah. And he was describing the seven summits and he was trying to get students to go to climb Kilimanjaro. And, you know, obviously everyone throws their hand up. Without, <laughs> you know, you're in transition year. Someone's saying you're going to go off to Africa for two weeks. So everyone throws their hand up and... Mm eventually the hands drop once they hear what you're actually going over to do or what's involved in, in the trip. So eventually it just was myself and a few of my friends from home went off with Ian uh, and a group from Mayo. And basically I I had always, once he had told us about Seven Summits, in back of my head I had researched it all. I could probably tell you the routes up the mountain before I even went to climb Kilimanjaro, but I was keeping that to myself. Uh, and I remember describing Dean on Kilimanjaro about you know, oh, this is how you do this, this is the route, this is how much it would cost to fund an expedition there. And he was just turned to me and goes, wow, you really have thought this through. <laughs> um, he didn't probably didn't take me seriously at first, but yeah, um, yeah basically did Kilimanjaro. I remember standing on top of it and just thinking, yeah, yeah, this is, this is something that I want to do. And from there, yeah, I've pretty much just been dead set on it and haven't really, I've had the blinkers on, I haven't really deviated from 
that path and thankfully it all worked out in the end. I love that Ian McKeever was your uh, inspiration because he was an incredible guy, wasn't he? I remember him in Today FM years ago. He, he'd come in just to do ads, but I remember him just from those short visits. He was a huge bundle of energy and optimism, wasn't he? He absolutely was. Like, Can you tell he, people like, about him? Yeah, like it's so long ago now and um, obviously Ian passed away mm. um, in like a tragic event on Kilimanjaro six months after I climbed, but he was, he was an inspiration for me anyway. It's, it sort of comes back to that thing, you know, they're like, you don't really know who you're going to affect when you come in and talk. You know, yeah. it could just affect one person. And I know he probably spoke to hundreds, if not thousands of students and mm. guided hundreds of students up Kilimanjaro. But, and I don't know what they went on to do. But for me, like, that's really defined my life um, when he came in and talked to us. So, like, I really owe, owe him a lot, really, for, for what he's done for me. Um, but he was, he, he had a very, he was very charismatic. He had very strong voice, I think, and good presence in the room. But just, yeah, he was just a great guy. And for me, just a massive inspiration, really. Yeah, he was only 42 and he was struck by lightning on Kilimanjaro. It was just incredible misfortune. Uh, very, oh, very rarely yeah. happens. And his fiance was in, in the group, a huge group from Ireland. But he raised so much money for charity. And as you say, uh, he, he, had that, he had that world record for so long. Uh, 11 years has taken you to complete it. You would have done this quicker, obviously, if we hadn't uh, the world shut down for those two years. Yeah, like, <laughs> I, it was a long time really before I said to anyone I was doing the Seven Summits. Someone who was able to put two and two together maybe might see the pattern of the mountains I was doing and figure it out, but I wasn't going to be admitting it to anybody. So did Kilimanjaro and then... Basically, I at one point I thought I might do it by 24. Uh, now, in hindsight, that is just <laughs> never was never going to happen. But yeah. that was sort of me dreaming as a 16 year old, um, and not understanding sort of the practicalities of it all. So yeah, I started at 16 to Kilimanjaro, and then obviously I've no form of income as a teenager doing my leaving third as well. So like it was four years before I was able to do another one. Um, so I went off to Russia. Um, probably parents weren't too happy about that one but went off to Russia <laughs> at 19 turned around and says I'm off I'll, I'll be back in two weeks <laughs> just <laughs> heading off to Russia on my own I'm just off to Russia know. there now yeah there's someone waiting for me at the other side I'm sure well I think there is anyway <laughs> you were lucky and, you went uh, then obviously weren't you absolutely like yeah, yeah anyone who's to do it trying to do it now and you yeah. haven't got that done you, you'd be yeah, God knows when yeah. the borders would open up and you'd be able to go in there so very fortunate with the time in that one so yeah, I went there and then, you know, started to pick up pace. I started my job and, you know, I was able to get a bit of momentum going. So things started to take off then and then COVID hit and I was delayed twice going over to Denali in Alaska. I meant to go in 2020, it was cancelled. Tried to go in 2021, cancelled. Uh, so luckily got over in 2022. But that was, Denali is one of those mountains where they say if you can kind of get up that, it's a good indicator about Everest. So it's a great training peak sort of to build up to that. So once I had summited that, I kind of knew I was in a good place to go to Everest and I was in the shape of my life. And I, for me, like I was like, right, I'm either going now or never. So then... And that's the one you're dropped yeah. in from a plane, isn't it? And you you take off. Yeah, it's kind of, the, it's a very unique expedition versus the ones I'd done before that because it's, you have to be completely self-sufficient. So in what I mean by that is like other mountains have support networks there there might be some sort of system in place to help you you know either carry weight or just distribute it across a bigger team so that yeah. you know you, you as a, the climbing team can have a higher chance of success but 
on Denali, the plane lands on the ice in the middle of nowhere, drops you off, flies off, and, you know, says, I'll see you in two weeks. So, you know, you have to carry really heavy weights. We were pulling sleds for a few days. Then we had heavy backpacks. And kind of luckily for us, but also unlucky for us, we had great weather. So, you know, obviously that... In in context of the place. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Lovely weather for Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we basically had great weather so we could keep moving and we just kept pushing. So we had good chances of success, which is hard on that mountain. But at the same time, it meant that we had to carry heavy loads, like three, four weeks worth of supplies, but we were only going to be there for two weeks. So it's a big test for Everest. Can you tell us, all the reports from Everest seem to be huge queues of people trying to get to the summit, a lot of chaos, a lot of danger. What was your experience like? On my summit day, like those queues would have, you would see would be on the summit ridge. So from basically the final hundred metres of the mountain, the last hour or two. And, I didn't experience any of that. Luckily, we had a great leader. Uh, we were led, the expedition was led by David O'Brien, a very experienced guy, and he just basically said before we went on our summit rotation that we will not be standing behind anybody. And so we let all the other expeditions go off on the first weather window, which happened in mid-May, I think it was about May 17th, May 18th, and we sat in base camp and, you know, everyone had itchy feet. We're all ready to go. And we were like, you know, David, can we not? Can we not go? You know, we'd been on the mountain for seven weeks at this point, you know, so it's it's hard to sit there for another while, especially when all the other climbers are going. And basically people were coming off the mountain and people were having their parties in base camp, but we hadn't even left yet. So once we just did decide to go, we basically had the mountain to ourselves. I think it was us and two other expeditions were there. We got up to the Camp 4, 8,000 metres just before the death zone, before you do the summer push. And yeah, it was just us and two other teams. I remember standing on top and I was, basically there with a handful of people um, and there was no one around so you know it just Brilliant. shows it, it really depends on the, the weather windows and um, you could have a the moment, the moment of your life. Day. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, look, congratulations. Seven summits. It's unbelievable. I, I gather Kerry Explorer Pat Falvey has done it twice. So um, you'll have to do it three times now to beat him. Oh, yeah, no bother. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't, don't tell time. my parents. Hopefully they're not listening. <laughs> <laughs> Mountaineer Ryan O'Sullivan on the brand new Oliver Callan show today. a popular feature on Today with Claire Byrne. Clinical child psychologist David Coleman was in studio to answer all your parenting questions. So this is interesting because we've been contacted by a number of people, parents and grandparents of boys between the ages of three and ten. And there's a a problem, a a common problem, like a thread going through these, that the, the child gets into a rage, lashes out physically when they don't get their way and we have descriptions of spitting and punching and kicking other family members whether it's parents or siblings and they're all wondering how they address this and what Mm. they should do. Will I read you one and and it might just provide us with a good example of this and then we'll get to to what you say. So this listener has a three-year-old son who really struggles with rage and big emotions. I understand it's his age and all the various little frustrations that come up but I don't know how best to help redirect his anger. So he flies into a rage at any little upset and lashes out at me, his dad, his sister, the dog, finding things to throw, kicking, hitting us. He has really hurt his sister at times. There's a lot of aggression there. I've been through the toddler rage before with his older sister, so I know it is a developmental stage, but I'm just totally helpless in the face of the rage.
right. I don't know how best to support him. With my daughter, it was a case of staying near and being ready with hugs once she was ready for it. With my son, he can't seem to calm down till he gets the rage out of his body in some physical way. And I really need some advice. And we have a number that are similar to that. So what's going on? So, and it is interesting because as you say, the age ranges are what, between three and 10 in, yeah. in the examples and the various people who've contacted you. And it's quite likely that the dynamic is a little bit different as you kind of move up in terms of age. Um, so with kind of three-year-olds and under, a lot of the time it is simply that they have no better way to express their frustration. And so it's just a, almost like a, an instinctive reaction or it's a, yeah, a reflex reaction almost to just fly into this rage and just to show their, yeah, the, the intensity of the feeling that they have inside. So there's a number of things you need to do if they're small. Uh, I mean, the good thing when they're small is that you're physically probably in a better uh, position to actually contain it. So it is important that you don't let your child hit you. And so that might mean that you have to gently hold their hands or it might mean that you actually have to move yourself or another child out of the room so that your child can't actually doesn't have access to hitting. And then it's a question of trying to uh, redirect them, perhaps distract them, uh, use soothing language, soothing tone, all that kind of stuff to show them that you can see that they seem really upset and yet it's not okay to hit. Hitting isn't allowed in our house. And so you need to have that as a very clear rule. Again, sometimes with with small kids, you can almost anticipate when they're going to fly off the handle. And so if you can manage that situation in advance, please do, you know. So if you have a chance to to, distract them or to, if you can see that there's trouble brewing, maybe suggest the look just leave your little brother alone there now you come out to the kitchen and give me a hand with this and that might help just to offset you know a a, a rage or a tantrum the other thing then I suppose if they're getting a little bit older what might have happened is that they have learned over time that this rage actually does get them what they want, that when they do strike out, when they do kick, when they do spit, when they do pinch, that people do acquiesce. Mm-hmm. And so that's a little bit more tricky then, because now you've got to actively change the behaviour from trying to understand that it's not just about really big feelings that they can't manage, although that could be there as well, but that also there may be an element of manipulation in it. And so you probably need to have um, a few more consequences consequences for children as they get older um, such that, uh, you know, they learn that when they do this thing, which is ostensibly a bad thing to do, hitting out, um, that then they're going to have some privilege removed or that there's going to be some kind of a sanction. Now, I'm not a huge fan of punishments and I think this is the thing that we always have to bear in mind as parents that when our kids act up and when they're really challenging for us, you know, a number of things can happen. Sometimes we feel very powerless. Sometimes we feel almost embarrassed that this is happening, particularly if this is happening publicly that your child is hitting you so you've got your seven-year-old giving you a whack and you know all your sisters or brothers can see it at a family event it's mortifying and so that can then lead to a huge big uh, strong powerful emotional reaction from the parent which often means then that we, we we're not responding I suppose in the most effective way we tend to be just reacting from our own anger at that point and then we maybe overdo it in terms of a punishment or we have this big reaction we start shouting at our child or pulling them and hauling them and all these things that maybe actually intensify or, or exacerbate the situation so so ideally, we're going to try and stay as calm as we can. Again, if we can try and contain the situation so that they're not able to hit. Um, and then we still come back to the, you know, after the event, sitting down with them saying, look, you know, you seemed really angry just then. And yet it's never going to be OK to hit if you feel angry. And then ideally have a few different strategies or solutions. You know, you can go to your room, you can kick a pillow, you can, uh, you know, go thump the bag that we bought for you up in your room. You can, you know, whatever whatever it might be, Mm -hmm. so that they have a way that they can deal with the feeling, um, but that ultimately 
basically you're you're just trying to be really consistent and then all the adults around need to be consistent. So if there's two parents, so two parents need to be consistent. I have, I have an example of a six-year-old who's doing that, oh. right? Lose, <laughs> losing the temper. Uh, this is from another listener. Kicking, screaming, thumping, slapping his siblings and parents. So from listening to you there, really we needed to act when that child was three. Uh, look, you know, I mean, we need to be constantly, uh, I suppose, responsive to our children and their needs. I think it's sometimes we can really, you know, punish ourselves almost or feel huge guilt that, oh, this was an issue that I let slide. Part it's, of being a parent. Yeah, it was all my <laughs> fault. I'm just a bad parent. And it's rarely the case. Um, I mean, for sure, there'll be times when we'll have made mistakes. Of course, we will. We're human. And so we're not going to get it right all the time. Um, but it's never too late when it comes to any issue with a child and their behaviour to try and change it. And so I suppose the consistency is what's really the key because we have to be consistent in terms of our behavioural response to them, in terms of the tones of voice that we're using, in terms of uh, the specific plan that we have. So if it's the case, for example, that we're always going to um, essentially kind of leave our child to just let this burn out, then all the adults need that. We don't. We can't afford to have any adult coming in, getting all hyped up and staying in there and ready for the, the fight in inverted commas um, with the six-year-old where there's a grand old emotional, if not psychological, if not occasionally physical tussle as there can be with some parents and so that means getting everybody on the same page and that's the really difficult bit you know and, and often again I mean I don't think any of the uh, listeners in the queries that sent them in mentioned but uh, you know often children who are displaying all this anger at home when they're out and about when they're in school when they're, they're in friends houses they're gorgeous <laughs> and I think that you know when we have this kind of um yeah, school angel and house devil. Again, it's just really disheartening for parents because then we then it is much mm. more likely that we're going to go, there must be something I'm doing. And actually, it may well be just about the dynamic, but it's not because you've done anything wrong. It's just that this is the, almost the habit that's built up. Would you be more concerned then about this 10-year-old and a gr- grandparent has written in about this boy who punches his mother while being corrected? Sometimes he refuses to go to school and will resort to punching. Would you be more worried about that? Much more worried, yeah. yeah. Because again, that sounds like it's, it's almost deliberately manipulative. That's him very definitely using aggression and violence as his way to try to control his mother uh, in that situation. And so that's only probably going to get worse as he gets older and gets bigger and stronger. And so that maybe is a situation where you definitely want to go and get some outside help. So go to a psychologist or go to your GP and look for a referral maybe to your local uh, CAMS team or primary care team, psychology. Okay, so don't don't even try to deal with that yourself. Well, no, I think you're obviously you're trying to manage the situation in its own right, but I think it's probably going to be, on, be beyond yeah in terms of the, the length of time that that kind of dynamic has been present just might need a bit of extra help to move it on. Okay um, lots of interesting ones coming in as we're talking but I want to go to this one which when I read this morning I just felt desperately sad for these people um, I'll read it to you and see what you think My wife wants to separate her separate. I love her. I always have and I still do. But she doesn't love me. She says she's been living a lie. So we're due to tell the kids soon that we're separating. We have four children aged between 16 and 11. She says she will move out. I want her to tell the truth to the kids because I'm fearful that they'll resent me, think that I drove Mammy away. I'd love some advice on this. Yeah, that's tough. That is very tough because I think you've got a a family situation there where, you know, I mean, maybe that's what's natural if if parents are separating. But here are two parents who are very much in disagreement. So the the dad, by the sounds of it, doesn't want to separate. The mum does. You know, she obviously has her very good reasons for that. 
And I think what the dad, by the sounds of it, what he would like is the mum to take full ownership and responsibility and say, it's all my fault. I'm the one who wants to leave. It's, you know, I'm the one who's separating here. You know, your dad would love us to stay together as a family, but I don't. Now, that's not realistic either, because in every situation, it takes two to tango. And so however the decision has come and maybe the mum is the one who's pushed the decision to separate, but that has involved both of them and both of their behaviours and both of their emotional responses and, and support and or lack of support for each other over the years. That's not just one person going, I'm done with you. It, it's rarely that case. So I think what they need probably in advance of talking to the children is maybe to talk to somebody together so that they can find um, an explanation for their children that's not overwhelming because the children are still relatively young, but that at least is consistent that they're both happy to sign up to as the reason why they're separating. Because I think that is very helpful for kids when when parents can agree in some way about why they're separating and and that it's a, a joint decision. Yeah, it's really tricky and and everyone has to, you know, stay in that really mature place. And often it's not easy when. No, because often it's in the height of conflict as well. And so the reason that parents are separating is because they can't agree. And so, of course, here we are. Well, here I am suggesting that they try and agree on something which may be beyond them as well. But I think if you can get maybe an independent third party like a mediator or a a counsellor who may be just able to help you find some way that you can at least not not to try to to come back together, but just to how you can separate in agreement Mm -hmm. about the separation. Now, here's one that's just come into us this morning on text. My seven year old son is suffering with anxiety anxiety going to school, saying he's going to miss me too much. Monday is the worst day. He wouldn't go into school this morning for me. I've given him a teddy going in. He gets himself really upset and I'm at my wits end. That's common, isn't it? Anxiety, school anxiety, school refusal. Yeah, I mean... so that, that sounds more like separation anxiety more than necessarily school. It'd be interesting. I think what the mum um, probably needs to do as well is just go in and chat to the teacher to see what is he like during the day because it's quite likely, although not guaranteed, that once he's over the moment of separation, once he's actually in school and involved in the day there, that he's fine and that he doesn't actually feel sad through the day and that he's not worried through the day. Now, he may be worried through the day, but it's I, I would imagine it's not likely. And, and so that means then that actually he's just a child who's really lucky because he's got a, probably a fabulous home and it's just really nice there and he doesn't want to let it go because it's really safe and secure and nice and pleasant and so um, there's a challenge to being in school and so I think you know there's a, a like a, a little boy he's only seven and yet he is seven which means he's probably you know senior infants first class uh, kind of age and um, and he, he still needs that bit of support to let go of his mum and so some of that might be about again with the school depending on the class and, and the teacher and there might be other like you know uh, SNAs in that class there might be an adult available who can meet them uh, at the school gate even just to help him with that transition okay. so that there's a supportive adult there that he knows that he can he can expect who can just help him get through that literally that moment of separation and then he's kind of into the day and then he'll be fine and, and so that gives him the confidence but it also gives the mum the confidence because I think again you know from a parent's perspective it's awfully distressing I mean this is this is the nature of it the child is doing all this to tug at the heartstrings and of course our heartstrings are tugged and then it's really difficult to let go and so I think the mum needs to have a little bit of resolve that he's going to be okay and send him with a bit of confidence but that might be helped if there's somebody there to receive him as well. Um, David we've two minutes left but I really want to get to this one we're going to the other end of the age spectrum Um, I've just discovered my son who's 18 and still at school is gambling regularly on his phone Wow That's from Maeve what do you do? Um, So again it, it 
it's quite likely if he's 18 and gambling regularly that it's become an addictive thing for him. And so that means that his dopamine centers, you know, the, the potential reward that's out there from from gambling is being activated all the time. I would suggest maybe go talk uh, to somebody about that. Find a counsellor for him and for yourselves. I'm not sure what the um, what uh, voluntary groups there are out there in terms of gambling, but the, there is probably the equivalent of, of Alcohol Anonymous, you know, Gamblers mm-hmm. Anonymous. I think that that might be the starting point for you in terms of just yeah. getting information about where best so to go. So the parent rings for help because well, it's I very think hard so. He's, to convince Well, I mean, you know, the 18-year-old hasn't accepted necessarily that he's even got a problem yet. So this is the mum recognising that he's got a problem. Um, the 18 year old may be in complete denial that this is a, a, a true issue for him. Mm-hmm. So so I think from the mum's perspective, go find the information for yourself, find out what is even available, what might help, what are the typical routes people follow in terms of dealing with this. And then it's about maybe coming back in, in terms of his change um, cycle. It might be about just trying to persuade him that he actually has a big enough issue that he needs to try and sort out. OK, um, very big problem, though, yeah. for that parent to try yeah, and very deal with. Clinical child psychologist David Coleman on Today with Claire Byrne. Well, there have been no confirmed cases of measles reported in Ireland this year, but the number of cases recorded in Britain and Europe is rising. The HSE is urging parents to ensure their children are vaccinated against measles. Monaghan-based GP Dr Alona Duffy spoke to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland. Uh, Good morning, uh, Dr Duffy. Tell us more about the, the rise in measles cases in Britain and Europe. Why has there been a rise? Well, we know uh, Britain, Europe and um, also the United States um, have started seeing a rise in cases within the past year. So obviously cases dropped hugely during COVID, as did all infectious diseases. But prior to that, they were also seeing a rise. So up to 2019, the numbers, especially in the United States, had reached an all-time high, then dropped and are now creeping back upwards. So why? Well, the big thing is vaccinations. We know that in many countries, we've seen a drop-off in the number of people who are being vaccinated, and that is children who are being vaccinated against measles. So the measles vaccine is part of the MMR, measles, mumps and rubella. And everywhere, including Ireland, we are seeing this concern that the numbers aren't reaching the key number and the key percentage in the country that we require to provide overall protection and reduce the levels of measles floating about. When was the last time you saw somebody with measles? Um, I had a case of measles about 18 months ago and again a young child um, who hadn't been fully vaccinated and I suppose that was the big um, thing for that child that had they had the vaccine they probably wouldn't have uh, developed the problems and become as sick as they were and that child did require a referral onto hospital. Are you experiencing many instances of people not wanting their children to be vaccinated? Well, we are finding um, a number of issues with that. Number one, there still is this fear uh, among some parents about the measles. And we know that many years ago, uh, an unfounded scare had been raised by Andrew Wakefield that measles um, or that the MMR vaccine was associated with an increased risk of autism. And we know that that's absolutely been disproved. So we can categorically say there is no link between the MMR uh, and autism. But yet that's still that fear of the vaccine still uh, continues. Also, we have an increasing number 
numbers of people moving to our country who have a different view on vaccinations and don't perhaps see the benefit or believe the benefit of them. So different cohorts of patients have different beliefs and it's harder to perhaps change their mind on those. And I suppose finally, Gavin, um, people are also forgetting the benefits of the vaccines. So when we had lots of cases of measles, mumps, rubella and other more serious illnesses, people understood how deeply serious they were, how they could lead to death and permanent disability. But because we aren't seeing that and that's not been reported, uh, people have forgotten the benefit of the vaccines and the need for them. Plenty of people listening who were born before the MMR vaccine was available here have had measles and they're fine. What are the risks if you get it? Well, we know that um, data collected in the States so shows that one in five um, people who develop measles there will be hospitalised. One in a thousand will develop swelling in their brain, so they'll develop a disease called encephalitis, which is very serious. And um, about one to three out of every thousand people in the USA have been reported as dying as a result of measles. So this is, this is you know, these are high figures. And I suppose figures for disease and a risk that needn't be there for anybody if they're vaccinated. And not only they vaccinated, I suppose the big thing is you may be vaccinated, but for various reasons, your immunity may not be high. And therefore, you need to know that those around you are also vaccinated. And we talk about this herd immunity, looking to have 95% of the population vaccinated so that we know that everybody is protected. And unfortunately, we're now below 90%. Dr. Alona Duffy speaking to Gavin Jennings on Morning Ireland today. Face Up to Cancer is a new fundraising campaign which sees three of Ireland's leading charities come together to ask people to upload their selfies in support of cancer research and other supports. Connor Ferguson, husband of the much-loved journalist and RTE presenter Keelan Shanley, who sadly died from cancer in early 2020, joined Claire Byrne to fill her in on the campaign. And Connor, when you walked in, we were trying to figure out when you were here last. It was when the documentary was yeah, on. Yeah, the documentary about just came out in uh, 2021. I think it was October. November, yeah, October. Um, and I mean, that was the reaction to the documentary was just was just unbelievable. Yeah, the reaction before the documentary, when yeah. the documentary was on and then afterwards, it was just a really moving piece of work, I think, and really personal to, to you and the family. It, I mean, it sure was. And we were kind of, um, I suppose, it was such a wave of, of love and affection and uh, encouragement from people after that, um, that it. It was a great way, I suppose, not everybody can do it, but it was an amazing way, I suppose, for me and the kids to kind of process some of some of our grief. Mm-hmm. How have you been since? Um, pretty good. Uh, I mean, the kids have been great. You know, they're both doing, doing well in school and uh, Lucy's playing electric guitar. She's got a bass and she's dying her hair red. And great. And probably mortified <laughs> uh, that I'm saying these things. Um, Ben's got really into rugby. So they're, they're doing really well. Like, Keelan would be so, so proud of, of um, how they've turned out. Mm. Um, and she takes obviously a larger responsibility for that I think yeah. than, than I do It's funny you've just jogged a memory for me I remember Keelan saying that one of the happiest times of her life and people know about her fabulous career but one of the happiest times of her life was when she was on maternity leave Yeah she loved it you yeah. know she uh, she didn't motherhood didn't come easy to her I suppose or, or, you know it took us a while for everything to work out but when it did work out mm-hmm. um, she wanted to spend as much time as she could with the kids Um just in those key early early years to to set them up, I suppose, and and I think that has paid a dividend for for all of us. So now, having gone through um, all of that and the documentary and talking about Keelan, and I know how difficult that is to do, you're now part of this campaign. 
Why are you taking yourself back into it? Why is it important for you to do that? Well, I mean, I suppose I, I do kind of regard myself as Keelan's representative on Earth, you know. <laughs> it's a big and, job. And it's her face rather than my face that will be uh, part of this campaign. But um, I, I, I suppose, I, you know, I used to be at home listening to items like this on the radio um, before Keelan was diagnosed and listen to people who've been bereaved or people who are affected by all sorts of diseases uh, or afflictions. But and I used to go, oh, my God, it's so depressing. You know, I'm not. Why am I listening to this? You know, or you might change channel or just hope it would end soon. You know, and then suddenly I was one of those people myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's just really, really important to um, to represent that, I suppose, represent the, the experience of somebody who's been imp- impacted by by cancer. Uh, I didn't get cancer myself, but, you know, it certainly turned turned my life and my children's lives upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, and but we've come out the other side, you know, and I suppose, you know, part of the reason I want to I want to represent that journey as well of, um, you know, there is life after cancer. Um, but I mean, the, the, the figures are, are really kind of really scary, you know, like it's 40, 42,000 new cases of cancer every day. One in two people alive today will, will get cancer. So you can't really run away from those those numbers. Mm-hmm. It's there. And, you know, we should say, I think you've touched on this, that the survival rates now are really good. And for a lot of people, they'll come through that and their life might be changed afterwards, but they'll be they'll be here and they will be well, we hope. And this is all about helping to remove the stigma, really, isn't it? As well as raising money for research. And can you talk to me about that and what you experienced yourself when it came to the the stigma around it and talking about it? Yeah, well, I mean, I'm quite a private sort of person. So, you know, I didn't really want, you know, when Keelan was ill, I didn't really want to be bothering people with how I was feeling about the situation. You know, it was all about her because, you know, it was much worse for her, obviously. Um, but looking back now, I kind of realised that I should have talked to people, you know, that by talking about it, um, it takes some of the fear out of it and, and the loneliness out of it. Mm-hmm. But as well as that, when you are the per- I don't know if you can answer this question, but when you are the person who is going through it, how comfortable are you talking about it? I, I don't know. Um, yeah, no, I wasn't comfortable talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. But was Keelan? Keelan... She wasn't really that comfortable talking about it either, you know, but I think, you know, I think she would. I, well, I know she'll be on board with this campaign because this is a, a about encouraging people to talk about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's trying to raise awareness and trying to um, be be open about about cancer. And, and as I say, like there are lots of positive stories around cancer. There are lots of amazing um, treatments being developed and incredible research and incredible support services. And, um, you know, I think we need to support that in any way we can. Because I know when Keelan was going through it, it was really important, wasn't it, for her to keep coming in here and keep working and keep going. And I wonder if you have that desire to keep working, do you, do you then try to minimise the impact that the cancer and the treatment is having on you because you want to appear to be, I'm fine, I'm getting on with it, I'm, I'm still going? Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that, you know, Keelan, uh, she was a very sort of forward moving kind of person. And um, so uh, I think she probably, uh, I mean, I'm analysing my, my wife here, but um, I think she didn't, you know, she felt like I need to just power through. And the more I sort of um, 
tell people about this, the more I will be kind of defined by by the cancer. And I don't want to just be seen as somebody who was sick, you know, because mm-hmm. nothing changed about her while she was sick. She was still funny and a brilliant mother and loving and um, good at organising the house, even uh, from How, her how's, how's that going for you now? Well, I'm not as good at that sort of <laughs> lark. Um, so there are, th- I mean, I've, I've got stuff done, but uh, it, it's, there's still a lot of, a few boxes, a lot of pictures that need hanging. Um, there's still a lot of stuff that needs, needs doing. But, um, but, you know, the kids are of an age where they can, they help out a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're we're muddling through. Yeah, you find new ways of, of doing things. Do you feel defined by cancer? Um, no, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, I, I just, I went back to college um, and I did an MA in screenwriting last year and I got my results on Friday and I was very happy with that. Oh, congratulations. Uh, thanks. Um, so I, I felt I need to do something. I need to, I need to live on. I need to, prove to Keelan that I am uh, still alive and mm. that I'm doing stuff. Um, so that's kind of, that was a, an interesting challenge, you know. I, Just to change your own story a bit, really? Is, yeah. is that, an, and to sort of have that propelling motion in your life that you're, you are living and you're here and you're doing things. Yeah, well, you can't give up. Um, and, uh, you know, I think... I would have been ashamed, I suppose, to uh, not live a full life. Um, the one, the one that Keelan didn't get to live. You know, mm-hmm. I think there is a sort of responsibility to to have those experiences and to to try and be positive and not just give in to grief or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, a big part of this campaign, as well, is to raise money for research into into cancer and that was a huge that was hugely important for her even before she had her diagnosis she was doing work on cancer research and new yeah, developments well, and was, treatments you know she came from a scientific background she studied science in college and uh, she was always interested in scientific stories and um, uh, I suppose cancer in particular I mean it is it's the number one killer in Ireland um, so it, it was high on the agenda and she was kind of already interested in it and then when she when she got it, she was still kind of really interested in it. She didn't want to block her ears and, you know, go under, under the blanket. Mm-hmm. Um, she did her own research. Now, not Dr. Google, but, um, you know, if she was in discussion with her oncologist about certain treatments, she'd go and look that up and sort of figure out if she thought it might be right for her. And she often would find other treatments and she'd discuss them with the oncologist. She, she wasn't looking for a miracle cure. Um, but she did want to take some ownership, I suppose, of her illness. So was that part of the reason why you felt this was the right campaign for you to get involved in? Because it was linked to the research side? Yeah, I think I, th- I think so. Um, and I mean, the heroes of cancer, um, the, they've made beautiful short films that are on uh, faceuptocancer.ie about various people, including Keelan, but also about, you know, people who are working in, in medical research, f- you know, looking for cancer cures and... Um, it is. It's fascinating stuff, you know. Um, now it's not stuff I uh, immerse myself in regularly. I don't really want to. Still, don't really want to know about it. But uh, but when you you know hear about a campaign like this, it's it's very hard not to kind of you know get on board with mm-hmm. it. Why don't you want to know about it? Um, I suppose I don't want to think what happens if somebody else in my close circle gets it. 
including me. And has to go through what, what yeah. you talking Yeah, yeah, I can completely understand that. So what do we have to do for this campaign? So it's a really nice campaign. It's, it's really kind of positive. Um, they want people to go on, go to the website faceuptocancer.ie and upload a selfie, make a donation, and then those selfies will all go towards making uh, these like photographic mosaics of um, the various years of cancer that have been nominated for the campaign. Also, when you, you, you'll get your selfie back um, in a kind of a framed digital frame that you can then post to your social media. So we want to like grow the story as much as possible. We want to get as many people involved as possible. And you can, the great thing is, you can make as many donations as you want <laughs> uh, and post a different selfie each time. So it could be you, it could be somebody you love, it could be somebody you've lost. You know, I think it's, it's a really nice way to, to just um, add support to this campaign. Mm. And just about everybody in Ireland has been affected by cancer, haven't they? You know, we took yeah. a picture there um, together. We've been affected by cancer, you know, probably in very different ways. But, you know, I think if anyone sat down for a moment and thought about it, of course they know somebody who's been affected by cancer or they know somebody who's, who knows somebody who was affected by cancer. Yeah. Um, and it's also like taking part in a mass work of art as well, isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a beautiful idea, Um and but it's difficult to explain on the radio. So hopefully people just go to faceofcancer.ie and get all the info there because I think it is nice and and it is these are vital funds that are that we're hoping to raise. Absolutely, and it'll be all over social media. People yeah. will find it in lots of different places and make whatever donation you can. It's faceoptocancer.ie. Connor Ferguson, husband of the late Keelan Shanley, on today with Claire Byrne. Well, they've provided generations of young people with their first taste of sporting success and the Community Games today announced a new sponsor and plans to expand. Jerry McGuinness, National President of the Community Games, spoke to Rachel English on Morning Ireland. Thanks for being with us this morning. I know a lot has changed since the first Games back in 1967 and, and children now have far more ways to spend their free time. Are they still interested in the Community Games? Good morning, Rachel. I, I think they are. We have uh, participation levels that are extremely high. We have about 160,000 participants across the country in over 400 areas. I think what pr- we provide is our emphasis is on the taking part and having the fun. And that's that's something I suppose is more pressure in, in other organisations. But we just want the children to have a good day out, enjoy their day and go away with happy memories. And I think that means that a lot of children still participate with us. Last year, the Games had no sponsor. How did that affect you? Luckily, due to, to prudent governance, we we didn't suffer as a result of it. But I mean, it means if you don't have a sponsor, all you can do is stand still. And we're too ambitious an organisation to stand still. And that's why this agreement that we're, we have signed with Cairn Homes is going to allow us to expand and be more ambitious and give us the tools to promote ourselves within areas where we need to promote ourselves. And when you say areas where you need to promote yourselves, are there parts of the country or are there specific communities where you're not as strong? Sometimes cities can be a difficulty, but it means to to review that and by having um, Cairn on board, Cairn Community Games can now actually focus staff resources where people have an interest to give them support where new communities are being built to to get in there and give community games to that, a ready-made event for communities and get in there and give them the support they need to get up and going. So I think that will give us the ambition 
in our traditional areas, people come and go. Sometimes if committees retire, it might take a year or two to get people back in and get community games going. It's an ongoing thing all the time. For a long time, the finals were held in Mosnia. I know an awful lot of people have fond memories of spending a couple of days there as a youngster. Where do the finals take place now? Uh, over the last couple of years, we've kind of revamped and rejigged and rethought the way we're doing things. So now they take place in a variety of venues. Athletics are in Carlow. Um, some the swimming is in Kilkenny this year. Team events are in Gormanstown College. And uh, we, we're basically bringing community games out into communities they weren't in and making it a fun day out and trying to make it a fun day out for all the family. Mm. I know you're keen to emphasise that this is about the fun and the taking part and all the rest of it. But at the same time, I mean, the games have quite a history in terms of it being, you know, the first time that many, many successful athletes, the first time that they tasted success. Yeah, that's very true. And I mean, the the great thing is it gave them a taste, as you say, for, for sport and it gives them an opportunity then to try something out, discover A, they like it and B, they're good at it and then go on to make hopefully a career out of it. But it's amazing the good memories they, they take away from it. Marcus Lawler has represented Ireland at the Olympics. He came to our athletics a couple of years ago and brought the badge he had in Mosny and had his Mosny medals with him. That's how much community games meant to him. So as you say, it doesn't just give them the opportunity to try something they make a career out of. It gives them great memories and memories they hold on to as adults. And that's what we're about. I have great memories of Mosley myself, National President of the Community Games, Jerry McGuinness on Morning Ireland. With St. Bridget's Day on Thursday, Claire Byrne wanted to celebrate fierce females by looking at books that feature strong lead female characters. She was joined by Waterford librarians Tracy McEnany and Jenny Lockran to discuss. And you're both very welcome. Thank, Thank you for being with us again today. So, um, Jenny, how important would you say it is for our characters to be inspiring and to overcome adversity in order for us to sort of fall for them? Well, when a character is inspiring, we're rooting for them and this engages us. It helps us to keep turning the pages. And I think it's particularly so for female characters um, when we have our women and girls in real life, women and girls have real have more obstacles to overcome. It's not a level playing field. So we can engage for them. We can root for them. And the genre then, or is there a particular uh, genre, would you say, Tracy, that lends itself really well to presenting strong female lead characters? If you Google strong female characters, you would come up with the science fiction and the fantasy. But there are strong females in every genre. Uh, you've got Lisbeth in The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. In the classics, you've got Joe March in uh, Little Women and Elizabeth Zott in Lessons in Chemistry. But also, in, historically, um, pe- the women have been underestimated. And we are strong women and they were great uh, women in the Greek myths and legends. And also uh, during the World War One and World War Two, they would have been spies and makes a great spy novel as well. Mm. But my favourite kind of strong women books is when you've got 
maybe a weaker woman has to deal with a problem and then you've got a whole community helping her. But I also particularly like when it's a whole women community, a group of strong women helping a weaker woman. And I think that's what makes a perfect novel. So what's in your mind now when you're telling me all of that? Have you got a particular book or story that you're thinking about? Well, the colour purple to me is absolutely fantastic. Looking forward to seeing the new film iteration of that. Well, I can't believe it's a Pulitzer Prize winner uh, back in 1983. was set in Georgia in the 20s. It's the story of uh, Celie's life, right? She's a 14 year old. Um, but she is surrounded by her sister Nettie, her daughter-in-law Sophia and the singer Shug, uh, Shug Avery. Um, but everybody should read this book. I listen to it on audiobook. It's eight hours long, um, but it's just powerful. Lots of twists and turns and people who are related to her turn out not to be related to her. I can't say too much, but she's had an awful tough old life and it takes the likes of Suge Avery and Sophia, her, her uh, daughter-in-law, to show her that she can. She has mm-hmm. a voice. She's an independent woman. She has to find her confidence because no one's going to love you if you don't have confidence. You're always listening to the audiobooks, aren't you? I imagine you now going around your kitchen or in work with one headphone concealed in under the hair. We work in libraries. <laughs> we don't have time to be listening to books or reading books. But I do love an audiobook and this is super duper. And also, if you are going to the cinema, make sure to read the book before you go because you get a lot more out of the book than you will. Out well, that's your rule anyway, oh, isn't it? Yeah. Um, Jenny, you're a fan of the fantasy stories which we mentioned as a genre which is really good for producing these characters, isn't it? It is. And I think with fantasy, science fiction novels, it gives the author and the reader an opportunity to imagine a world where they the female characters don't have the constraints of our societies on them so they can overcome overcome things and you know they might be fighting demons or aliens or leading charges into battle but I think like a physically strong female character is a good role model for a young girl it shows them the possibility and I'm also thinking about characters that um, don't necessarily have superpowers like Buffy from Buffy the Vampire Slayer mm-hmm. um, the Black Widow from the Marvel comics Natasha Romanoff Although, you know, we find out that she did have a little bit of enhancement, but I can't say too much. The comic readers would be on straight away, the graphic novel purists. Um, and we're talking about film adaptations there. Some character like Ellen Ripley from the Alien films, but they, there would have been a, a huge series of graphic novels would have come out after those. And picturing people like, you know, like those characters in science fiction. And there's a lot of um, women writing in science fiction. Uh, Ursula Le Guin, Mary Shelley in the classics and newer authors like N.K. Jemsen. They're given, like as I mentioned earlier on, real life is not a level playing field. In science fiction Mm -hmm. and fantasy, everything is levelled. Because we're all encouraging our our daughters and our granddaughters and our nieces to to read. So if we're looking for fearless females, where do we steer them towards? Well, my top recommendations at the moment, uh, the Frankie's World novels by Aoife Dooley. She's an Irish author and they're about novels about fitting in. They'd be aimed at kind of the nine to 12 year olds. Frankie's fierce, but she doesn't feel it. And the author, Lizzie Huxley-Jones, describes her perfectly. She said, Aoife Dooley captures Frankie's autistic experience with great care, humour and love. I love those 
those books. And uh, Lizzie, who gave that fantastic description of the Eva Dooley book, she's written her own book, and she's the one coming out with a fierce female character in it. And it's called Vivi Conway and the Sword of Legend. They're set in Wales. Vivi's a regular girl and discovers that she's actually part of a magical group of children. The fiercest females of them all, the Skullduggery Pleasant series. They're for slightly older children written by Irish author Derek Landy and Valkyrie Kane is the hero. Now, I know Skullduggery's all over the series and he's a 400-year-old skeleton detective, but to me, the main character is actually Valkyrie, who is an Irish girl. She saves the day on more than one occasion and the Skullduggery Pleasant series crying out to made into TV series or film. And, so, and that's for, you're saying, older children. So older what, 12 children. and up 12 maybe? Up, 12 and up. 12 and right up. Adults will okay. enjoy it as well. That's a Skullduggery Pleasant and, series. And the Lizzie Huxley-Jones um, book, Vivi Conway and the Sword mm. of Legend, that's for the younger ones, is that's it? That's for the younger like ones. Kind of eight, nine eight, upwards. Nine. Yeah. Okay, it's always good to have. because I'm forward to the second one. I made that, that out mistake. Now. Sometimes bringing home a book that's maybe you know, yeah. for the wrong age group and it doesn't work and then it turns them off yes. for, <laughs> for all time. So for children then, um, Tracy, your suggestion on the children's characters that are fierce females? Well, to me, my favourite book um, and when I was a child was Mary Poppins and this is by Mary Norton. She is the ultimate fierce woman, really, isn't she? A problem solver, solves the family problems, um, smart. Um, and of course, they had the remake of that film. And Nancy Drew by Carolyn Keane. Um, I used to watch Nancy Drew on a Saturday and I always preferred when she had Nancy Drew in and with, working with the Hardy Boys because she always put the, the boys in the, the, the shade because she always solved the problem. Yeah, uh, I love the, the Nancy Drew so, books. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You've got Matilda um, by Ronald well, Dahl. She's a great fierce oh, female. She's the best. Yeah. She is the best. Yeah. Big into the books, big into the education. You have Anne Shirley from Anne of Green Gables, of course, and then Little House in the Prairie. You have Nancy Olson, who is very fierce or you have Laura Ingalls every Saturday morning we'd watch yes. Little House on the Prairie and uh, and watch them all so um, moving on then to brave characters that might take us on a journey um, Tracy do you want to take us through this so we're moving into adult books now this is Girl, Woman, Other by Bernadine Evaristo. Now, she was the co-winner of the Booker Prize back in 2019. Um, it follows the lives of 12 female characters over the course of several decades. All the characters are interlinked. Really great book. I actually love this book. The Girl with the Louding Voice, Abby Dara, uh, debut 2020 when this book was published. This is a really special book. Um, it's the story of 14-year-old Nigerian Adoni who is illegally married to become the third wife of this elderly gentleman to pay her father's rent. Um, all she wants is an education. Her mother was advocating for her education, but of course her mother died. She ends up being sold as a servant to Lagos, um, a family, rich family. Um, but it's all about um, Adoni finding her voice and the strength to stand up for herself and get an education. And again, it's got some nice, you know, people helping her along the way. But it's also told in a Dunny's voice and it's told in a kind of a pigeon English. It writes as pigeon English, and uh, but it's very, very good. And this actually, Abby Dara said that the inspiration for this book and a Dunny's voice came from The Colour Purple. So ah, that was okay. pretty, so pretty nice. to what we've, we've talked about before. Yeah. Waterford librarians Tracy McEnany and Jenny Lochran on Today with Claire Byrne. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Playback Daily. So from me, Louise Herity, thanks for listening and take care. Mm-hmm.